1379, a prisoner made their final journey. The longest journey he would ever make, as his destination was the gallows, where he would hang before a crowd that could barely wait to see him dangle by his neck until dead. In 1801, these gallows claimed its final victim. Hundreds of condemned met their end here, including the most famous highwoman that ever was. The site where the gallows once stood appears to have been stained by the extreme death and suffering that occurred here. This manifests itself in people being touched by unseen hands and disembodied voices carried on the breeze. So tonight join me as we head to a grisly monument of death and we investigate York Tyburn. Welcome to episode 42 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week we return to York and ask, just how haunted is York Tyburn? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. On the 31st of March, 1379, a private soldier, Edward Hewison, was taken from a small cell at York Castle and put into the back of a horse-drawn cart. After passing through the imposing castle gateway, he could see that crowds had lined the route the cart would take, men, women and children, local to York, cheering as the cart passed. But Edward Hewison was no hero. He was a convicted rapist, and he sat atop a wooden box trembling with fear, as he knew within the hour, he'd be dead. The wooden box he sat upon was his own coffin, 
and he would have the dubious honour of being the first man to lose his life at York Tyburn, the first official gallows in the city of York, erected in Knavesmire. It quickly earned the nickname of the Three-Legged Mare, as it was built as a wooden triangle, standing on three wooden pillars. It was a long journey to the gallows, and the crowd had reached fever pitch by the time Hewison arrived at York Tyburn. A silence fell over the crowd, as the condemned man took his final breaths, and then the baying crowd cheered and whooped in delight as he dangled by his neck, thrashing and fighting in vain, until less than three minutes later, he was dead. For over 400 years, York Tyburn claimed many hundreds of lives, including the most famous highwayman of all time, Dick Turpin. Richard Dick Turpin had been an apprentice butcher before turning to a life of crime with the infamous Essex Gang, also known as the Gregory Gang. They robbed remote farmhouses, where they tortured and terrorised women into handing over anything of value. One particularly callous attack took place on the 1st of February 1735. Turpin had heard of an elderly widow named Shelley in Loughton in Essex, and the gang broke in, threatening to murder the old lady unless she hand over her money. She refused, so they threatened to push her into the open fire, but she still wouldn't part with her life savings. However, her son was in the room, watching this brutal attack on his elderly mother, and he shouted out, pleading with them to stop, and he'd give them what they wanted. By the 8th of February 1735, the king had offered a £50 reward for the capture of the gang, such was their notoriety, having carried out a vicious attack four days prior on a rich farmer by the name of Francis. They beat his wife and daughter until he surrendered the family riches. By the end of April, many of the gang had been apprehended and executed, so Turpin turned to the crime he's best known for. He became a highwayman. By 1737, Dick Turpin was working with the gentleman highwayman, Tom King, whose real name was Matthew King. They forged a friendship, and they operated a successful partnership alongside another highwayman, Stephen Potter. Tom King was shot at the Red Lion pub in Whitechapel on the 2nd of May that year, later dying from his injuries on the 19th of May. Some believe he was actually killed by Dick Turpin in a tragic accident. Turpin lay low in a cave in Epping Forest, but on the 4th of May he was tracked by Thomas Morris, servant to one of the keepers of the forest. He challenged Turpin at gunpoint, but Turpin shot him dead with his own weapon, a carbine. Now not just a thief, a murderer, the Duke of Newcastle placed a £200 reward for the capture of Dick Turpin, so he fled to York, setting up a horse dealer business in the assumed name of John Palmer. Palmer was his mother's maiden name. He lived the life of a gentleman, subsidising his lifestyle with horse and cattle rustling in Lincolnshire. He was a big hit with the local gentry, but after an unsuccessful hunt, he shot the cockerel of the landlord of the inn at which he was staying. When the angry landlord challenged him, he threatened to shoot him also. He was taken into custody and inquiries were made as to how he made his money. A justice of the peace from Lincolnshire confirmed that he was a suspected horse thief. Sir Palmer was detained, later being transferred to York Castle. Turpin was held in the dungeons of York Castle while these allegations were investigated further. This was when he made a fatal mistake. 
writing a letter to his brother-in-law, requesting him to, and I quote, procure an evidence from London that would give me a character that would go a great way towards me being acquitted. The letter was kept at the post office, but his brother-in-law refused to pay the delivery charge. The letter was spotted by one of Dick Turpin's former teachers, James Smith, who recognised the handwriting. He travelled to York Castle and he identified Palmer as Turpin. Turpin was trialled and sentenced to death. On the 7th of April 1739, followed by five mourners who he'd hired the day before for £3.10 shillings to be shared between them, Turpin was taken through York by cart to York Tyburn. He was accompanied by John Stead, a horse thief who was also going to hang. Turpin was written to have behaved himself with amazing assurance and bowed to the spectators as he passed. He climbed the gallows and he sat for half an hour chatting calmly to the guards and his executioner. York had no permanent hangman and ironically the executioner on this occasion was Thomas Hadfield, a fellow highwayman, pardoned on the condition that he would act as executioner. An account in the Gentleman's Magazine for the 7th of April 1739 notes Turpin's brashness. Turpin behaved in an undaunted manner as he mounted the ladder, feeling his right leg tremble. He spoke a few words to the topsman, then threw himself off and expired in five minutes. Turpin's body was left hanging until late afternoon. After being cut down, it was taken to a tavern in Castlegate. The following morning, he was buried in the graveyard of St George's Church, Fishergate, opposite what is now the Roman Catholic St George's Church. Six days later, on Tuesday the 14th of April 1739, ironically, Dick Turpin himself was stolen, as his corpse was dug up by body snatchers. The theft of cadavers for medical research was a common occurrence at the time, but when it occurred, it left the locals outraged, and on this occasion, the body snatchers, together with Turpin's corpse, were tracked down by an angry mob. The body was reinterred in St George's graveyard, supposedly this time with quicklime, to speed up decomposition should Turpin's body be targeted once again. At the time, it was believed that quicklime would cause corpses to decompose quicker, but this has since proven to be inaccurate, and an application of quicklime can in fact help preserve bodies. Turpin's grave can be found in St George's Churchyard to this day, with the headstone reading, John Palmer, otherwise Richard Turpin, the notorious highwayman and horse dealer, executed at Tyburn, April 7th, 1739, and buried in St George's Churchyard. Whether Turpin's body really does lie in that grave, and the suggestion that perhaps it was never recovered at all, and the grave is in reality empty, has been debated in the near 300 years since his life was taken. The last execution at York Tyburn was in 1801, when Edward Hughes was executed for rape. It stood for a further 11 years before it was taken down in 1812. There's surprisingly very little written about the ghosts of York Tyburn, and there have been very few investigations carried out at the site. But what I do know is that the bulk of phenomena reported by visitors to the site takes two forms. Being touched and having clothes tugged by unseen hands and ghostly voices carried on the breeze across the Knavesmire, where no one else is around. On the night of Friday the 13th of May 2011, I carried out an investigation at the site of the York Tyburn with my younger brother Tom, and my good friends John Crozier and Richard Stokoe. This was while spending time in York for my book Ghosts of York. 
This investigation made up chapter 4, entitled The Long Journey to the Gallows. I shall now read an abridged version of that chapter. Friday the 13th is a day traditionally considered to be unlucky, and of potential ill fortune. Some people actually fear Friday the 13th so much that on this most dreaded day they won't leave their house. This phobia is named Frigatriscadecophobia, with Frigga being the Norse god for whom Friday is named, and Triscadecophobia is the fear of the number 13. Let's hope that it wouldn't be unlucky for us, as on Friday the 13th of May we were daring to once more travel to York, as across the next 48 hours we'd be investigating two of York's most fascinating outdoor venues. Due to the outdoor nature of tonight's investigation, we were hopeful that the weather wouldn't be an issue, but as we drove down the A1, the weather was changeable between overcast, heavy rain and the occasional bout of sunshine. Despite this nagging concern, we were in high spirits, and even though we'd all had a busy day at work, the conversation was flowing and bouncing from subject to subject, including a lengthy debate about what our ghost hunting team name should be, a subject we discussed at length for the best part of a year, without ever really getting closer to picking a name. As always, the conversation eventually found its way to the subject of ghosts. Tonight's venue has a dark, gruesome history, and the site will forever be intrinsically linked to death and suffering. Tonight, we'd be heading to York Tyburn. At 8.45pm, a little over an hour and a half after setting off from Newcastle, I parked up in Nunnery Lane Car Park, and we all got out to stretch our legs and gather our belongings from the boot. We crossed the road to Bar Convent, which would be our accommodation for the next couple of nights and rang the bell. We were welcomed inside out of the rain, and shown by the kindly nuns to our rooms. Rich Tom and I were on the highest floor of one building, and John was in another. We dropped our bags off, and went out for some much needed food from a nearby takeaway. After returning and changing into suitable ghost hunting attire, we headed back out into the cold, but now, mercifully dry evening at around 9.45, for the short 15 minute walk to York Tyburn. When we arrived at York Tyburn, a fairly large paved area with a stone plaque, we sat on the two large wooden benches that look out across the Knavesmire. The large expanse of land before us, and the former site of York Tyburn. Immediately in front of us was a wooded area dense with trees and bushes on a fairly steep sloping area of earth. It was on this sloping area that the excited crowds, baying for the death of the convicted felon, would gather on the day of the execution. A popular school of thought is that the actual gallows were on the flat land at the bottom of the slope around 100 metres in front of us, rather than on the spot marked by the plaque on the small paved area that we were sat at. It's amazing to think that this fairly unassuming area of land was where so many hundreds of people lost their lives. When I began to think of how those prisoners must have felt as they were transported here by horse-drawn cart, sitting on top of their own coffin with the noose around their neck, I felt a chill run through me and the hair stood up on the back of my neck. There had been such a great loss of life and such fearing suffering that if we were going to find evidence of ghosts, then this had to be the place to find them. Surely, it just had to be. We split into two teams to investigate the area. It was ten past ten at night, so we agreed to meet up half an hour later at 10.40. We stepped off the paved area into the long grass of the wooded area, and it was almost like stepping into a swamp, with the ground being so sodden from a day of heavy rain. 
I could hear grumbling behind me from the others about how their feet were soaking wet already. My trusty Adidas Samba, however, were doing an excellent job and my feet were bone dry. The same could not be said for my legs though, as my combat trousers were soaked through and actually stuck to my legs right up to the knees. After a couple of minutes we reached the bottom of the slope and we were out of the long grass. We each wished the other group luck and Tom and I went off to the area to the left and Rich and John headed across to the right. The Knavesmire is vast, so earlier we'd made a plan to cover a bit more of the area around where the gallows would have been to see if we could pick up on any initial activity in this peripheral area before later investigating the site of the gallows, both possible sites. The paved area, with the plaque installed by York County Council said to indicate the spot of the gallows, and the possible site at the bottom of the slope believed by many historians to be a much more likely area for the gallows to have been erected. I looked out across the land, but it was so dark now that we were away from the road, the streetlights hidden from view by the trees and bushes, that without putting our torches on, we could barely see ten metres in front of us. We tried asking for some kind of sign if there were any spirits with us, however our half an hour passed by quickly and without incident. However, when we were walking back to the benches to meet the others, we did see a red light hovering in the air roughly 400 metres ahead of us. Unfortunately, as the light moved closer and closer, we realised it was John's head torch. Tom and I sat on the benches and watched John and Rich approach up the soggy slope. I'd had high hopes that they would have had more luck than us, but they too had drawn a blank. We sat on the benches at the paved area, Tom and I on one bench and Rich and John on the other. Traffic was passing constantly with us being so close to a busy main road, so it was noisy, but we pressed ahead taking some photographs in this area, well lit by streetlights. Rich led the session, attempting to make contact with the spirits who lost their lives, dangling with a noose around their necks, and have potentially remained here ever since. More than half an hour passed, and try as we might, we couldn't stir up any responses to our requests for knocks, voices, touch or affect one or more of us, or actually appear to us. At 11.30pm, we carefully negotiated the wet, swampy wooden slope, and when we reached the bottom, we stood silently. I heard a rustle in the bushes on the slope behind me, but we all dismissed it as being some kind of animal. Tom said he'd been drawn to an area a short distance from where we were stood, with particularly long grass. Rich joined him, and they moved to that area, and quietly asked out for some kind of sign that we were not alone. John and I stood quietly where we'd been for the last 10 to 15 minutes but it seemed quiet, almost too quiet. Tom was taking some photos and he and Rich ran back over to us excitedly. Tom showed us all a photo which he'd just taken, which showed a white wispy mass. Rich had suggested it could be Tom's breath, so Tom returned to the same spot and tried to recreate the photo. He did manage to capture a photograph which bore some similarity by drawing a huge intake of breath and then exhaling right next to the camera as he took the image. The four of us were now standing once more at the foot of the slope from the paved monument at York Tyburn. Rich suddenly span around in a hurry making me jump. Something touched my neck and my ear. We discussed whether it may have been an insect. Rich said it didn't feel like an insect but agreed that it was possible. Rich asked aloud for some kind of sign that there was a spirit or spirits with us. A few moments later I almost fell over. I'd been stood perfectly still and I didn't feel like I'd been pushed, but it was as if I was suddenly off balance. 
With the time nearing midnight, we made the reluctant decision to call it a day. We'd all had a long day, and we had another investigation the following night. We'd all felt a little deflated by our night at York Tyburn. I'd been really excited by the prospect of investigating this location ever since I got the go-ahead by York City Council. With such a bloody horrible history, I thought it'd be like shooting ghosts in a barrel, however it wasn't to be. As we walked back towards Bar Convent, wet, cold and disappointed, I suggested we should go to the Punchbowl pub next to the convent for a nightcap. This was a popular suggestion with the others. Little did we know at the time, but our disappointment would be short-lived. We had actually all experienced something utterly astonishing. The most compelling, concrete evidence for the existence of ghosts that any of us could ever hope for. We just didn't know it yet. The following evening, we would conduct another ghost hunt in York, this time at one of the lesser known locations in this most haunted of cities, and it was then that we'd discover what had happened to us all at York Tyburn. Next week, all will become clear. Hang around at the very end of this episode if you want to find out a little bit more about next week's location, which has ties to the Vikings, and some people believe may be a secret government base. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at, at @howhauntedpod, or over on Instagram at @howhauntedpod, where you will see photos galore relating to York Tyburn. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com, or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com. Feedback, location suggestions, and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like, and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you'd like to support the show, you can sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. If you'd like to get ad-free, early access to episodes, as well as exclusive episodes where you can join me on an actual paranormal investigation, and hear the audio as it happened, you can gain access right now, for less than the price of a pint, and there's nine episodes of this nature waiting for you right now. There's also a tier where not only do you get all of that, but you can get yourself some exclusive How Haunted merch, including a mug and a t-shirt, as well as join me on an actual paranormal investigation via livestream and talk to me throughout. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod to find out more. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to the podcast, why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash how haunted pod all the information on how you can support how haunted is in this podcast episode description and over on the website i'm running a competition where two winners will win a signed copy of one of my new books there is a copy of illustrated tales of northumberland which was released in february and a copy of paranormal northumberland which was released in may up for grabs in july i will be walking 28 miles in one day to raise money for cancer research uk in memory of my dear friend John, who lost his battle in 2017, aged only 34, to enter the competition as well as supporting this much-deserving charity. If you can afford to do so, please consider heading over to justgiven.com forward slash page forward slash walk for John 2023. That's justgiven.com forward slash page, P-A-G-E, forward slash walk, the number four, 
John with an H, 2023. The link is in this podcast episode description. And sponsor me whatever you can afford. Then just drop me an email at rob at how-haunted.com and I'll pop your name in the hat. I'll do the draw at the end of July and ship the books out to the two lucky winners anywhere in the world. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out we continue our time in York and we head to the largest water tower in Europe which is part of the University of York's campus. That may not sound particularly scary, however scratch beneath the surface and the hill upon which this tower was built has ties to the pagans as well as the vikings and it may even be the burial site of one of the most famous vikings who ever ruled Jorvik. Phenomena reported here includes footsteps heard clearly walking around as well as dark shadowy figures seen moving swiftly between the trees. But what would I experience when I spent some time here? And what would I discover that we'd actually experienced the previous night at York Tyburn? Let's find out together next week when we look at Seawards How. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe and join me next time when we will once again ask the question How Haunted? If you have any messages, can you please speak into the machine that I hold in my hand?